Sometimes um, I begin a talk, I say, well, I'm going to talk about the such and such, the seven factors of enlightenment or the Eightfold Path or the something of something that's clearly delineated. And it's been a really interesting experience um, getting ready to talk tonight because uh, all through the day I kept uh, collecting different ideas. I said to Joseph, I think I'll talk about the seven factors of enlightenment. And he said, that's a great idea. He said, also talk about balance and practice and zeal. And I said, okay, I can do that. I'd like to say that uh, there's uh, probably about, oh, almost 72 hours now until uh, Saturday night when we begin to do some talking. So, in fact, um, I said, what a good idea. I'll talk about instead of sliding in in a relaxed uh, sort of decrescendo to the end of this retreat that people might now think, wow, I've been warming up for this three-day intensive now that I'll have for the last three days of this retreat. I think that's a good idea, actually. As I'm formulating what I'm going to say, maybe that's what I'm going to say. And then, um, many of you know that uh, today is the 20th anniversary of moving in here. And uh, you probably, you may have heard that there was a party in the staff dining room and you may have heard people singing happy birthday to us and uh, having a party about it and even a, a little bit of a discussion you might want to know there was a little discussion about can we sing happy birthday to us because there are all these yogis out there practicing quietly and it's not exactly maybe good form to have a party within hearing range of where people are but then we had a discussion about what we assumed would be the sympathetic joy that everybody would feel. <laughs> about us having a party. So, and we decided that you did. Uh, and if you didn't hear us, then I thought I'd tell you about it. <laughs> so meantime, collecting all of those... Um, ideas and also that today is Valentine's Day and you probably saw hearts on the bulletin board and people giving out candy one place or another and little bags of candies near people's doors and I thought Valentine's Day has got to be an interesting experience for every single person here who remembers it's Valentine's Day all the possibilities of having someone who is your particular sweetie at this point in life and maybe missing them because they're not here. Or not having a sweetheart and wishing that you had one and thinking about that. And all the complications of special lovingness, either not having someone that you love in that special way or having one and not being together with them or having one and having them even here together with you and not talking to them, and all of the complications of, of particular relationships. And I thought, well, I could talk about how much more a relief metta is, universal lovingness, that it's exciting to have a particular love, and like all excitements, with its own problems, and that loving everyone 
it's really much easier. I thought, well, you know. <laughs> it really is. It really is. The state of the heart that just rests in universal loving kindness and doesn't have to remember who it likes the most or the least is actually much more comfortable. So I thought about it. I could talk about that. And then as I came in, I thought, I really want to talk about this room a little bit, and then we'll see how it goes from there. Because I thought about the fact that for 20 years, people have been sitting in this room and uh, trying, having the intention in this room to open to the truth of their own heart and mind. You know, when I sit here, and uh, I look at you sometimes in the course of when people are here for some period of time or I know people year after year. Um, and people uh, do me the great honor, really, when I'm in a position of being a teacher, of telling me their stories. Some people do. And sometimes we meet and we just talk about people's practice, and that is fine. And sometimes when people's practice is a preoccupation with a particularly painful life story. They tell me that as well, and that's fine. And I look at people, sometimes as the days go by in a retreat, and I look at them in the beginning, and I don't know them, maybe, or I know them from last year or the year before, and then I look at them at the end, and everybody looks different to me at the end. Not only do I know their story a little bit, but people look softer to me. That people look uh, smoother, easier, that the story that people come in with is going to be the same story that people return to when they go home. They go home, pick up the threads of their life, whatever it is. Many people have complicated decisions in their life that they need to make and decisions that they're struggling with. The same decision will be there when they get home. Problem does not get any easier. My sense is that everybody's heart gets uh, more spacious in terms of holding it. The, the sense of extra pain that we have is the sense, I can't deal with this. And one of the things that we discover is not so much that we can solve the problem, but more that we can hold the problem, that the problem is holdable that our pain is holdable, that our confusion or our conflict is holdable. We can do this. And people have been doing that in this room for 20 years. Imagine the numbers of stories that happened here. And imagine the numbers of hearts that relaxed at, during that time. I feel a particular affection for this room because I know exactly the very Zafu that I always sat on, because it all always in the same place, somewhere there in the back on this side of the hall. I remember sitting next to people, sat next to a man one year who um, I actually fell in love with. He was so diligent and just sat so well. I have no idea of who he was, but he just really sat tremendously diligently and felt really sweet to me in his vibe. Never looked at him, of course, or he to me, but I had a great love happening for him in the course of 10 days. And um, for a while, I, was, I, was, I had a, 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 a funny thing happen with him. 
at the end of each sitting when the bell would ring, he would lean forward in what I thought was a quite profound bow. And I just was so uh, taken with what I took to be his reverence. And after a while, I got it that he was in such tremendous pain (laughs) that when the bell rang, he kind of collapsed forward. I don't actually think he was bowing at all. And I was really so eager for the end of the retreat so that I could tell him how much his steadfast practice had held me up for that period of time. And then on the day of the last day of the retreat, but in the morning, before we were talking, we came and we sat before breakfast, and he was there, and then I came back after breakfast, and his zafu was gone, and his zabutan was empty, and I was bereft, and I didn't know him at all. All those stories, can you imagine my story, and there are thousands of yogis been here for 20 years. That was just one story of mine, and thousands of people have had thousands of stories of falling in love with other people, falling in love with their own capacity to feel at ease, to feel okay, not to feel even pleased with their life, but to feel that they can hold it. Uh, about anyone get enlightened. What I'd like to talk about then for the rest of the time is the seven factors of enlightenment and what it looks like. There we go. I'm having a particularly good time doing this talk because I'm thinking about Sharon being here. I want you to know that Sharon was here 20 years ago on the opening day of um, this place. I wasn't. Um, that was just before my introduction to Dharma. So I just started about 20 years ago, and Sharon was here, and she'd started way before that. It's a pleasure to give a talk in the company of my good friend and really esteemed teacher, really my meta benefactor. So it's really a pleasure to do that part. I feel like everybody is thinking good vibes on her, and I'm enjoying that. <laughs> I figure it. I figured today that everybody was thinking good vibes on me, and thank you very much for it, because I was in a really big trouble with my back this morning, and here I am, large as life and fine. And I really think it's because everybody thought good wishes for me. In that vein... Let's talk a little bit about the seven factors of enlightenment. The kind of balanced mind that we are all hoping to acquaint ourselves with, not because it's something that's beyond our reach that we have to learn how to do, but that something that is our birthright, our capacity, something that we just have to remember. It's wonderful to talk about the seven factors because One of the things that um, I think we highlight when we teach, because it's so problematic, are the difficult mind energies that arise, that cloud the mind. Talk about the hindrances and the antidotes to the hindrances. And sometimes uh, I think perhaps we should talk more about the really wonderful states of mind that are also present a lot of the time, 
and that perhaps we don't notice as much as we might and remind ourselves of because we are so uh, more or less on the lookout for the next difficult state on the horizon. I remember my, you know, it's still in my own practice, periods of time where it's really wonderful and easy and uh, one feels delighted with being here, with practicing, with having the extraordinary opportunity to practice in this life. And then all of a sudden, here comes on the horizon some sort of a bad mood or a bad mood or a lustful mood or a torpor's mood or a restless mood or an attack of doubt. What on earth am I doing here? Sort of arises from something, from nothing normally. It feels that people say, I was going along just fine. And all of a sudden, boom, out of left field, I was asleep or I had an anxiety attack or couldn't figure out why I was here. And then it hangs around for a certain period of time, that hindrance attack, and then by and by, either through skillful effort or just because things change, it's gone. And then there's some interim time, and I think often we do not fully investigate the interim time. It's kind of okay, now's an interim time, I'll just wait for the next thing to happen. Sometimes people come to interviews and uh, I might say something like, uh, are you attentive to uh, mind states? And they say, no, no, I haven't had any mind states today. <laughs> what, what people really mean is I haven't had any difficult mind states today, but in the absence of difficult mind states, we feel concentrated and tranquil and we have equanimity and we have rapture and joy and zest and zeal and interest and investigation. We are mindful. All kinds of things happen when we are not preoccupied with difficult mind states. One of my favorite stories about one of the factors of uh, enlightenment is uh, about, uh, well, I'll tell you the story and then you'll know which one it is. A friend of mine, my friend Anna, uh, who teaches with me on the West Coast, was, teach, was sitting here at one point for a very long time. She was in LTY a long time ago, many, many months. And she said, I was very attentive to mind states. I was having some very difficult and painful periods. And she said, one day I was sitting in the hall. I had this whole new mind state that I never had before. It was so strange and new, and I'd never had it. And me a long time to figure out what it was, and finally I figured out that it was calm. <laughs> uh, but when people hear that, they usually think, whoa. But it's in fact a sad story, you know, that imagine that we are so unfamiliar with calm that we have not marked it. You know what? I'm feeling calm. That's really lovely. Calm is lovely. Kind of on the lookout for something dramatic. And here is calm. People say, not much is happening. That's wonderful to be having. That's much. Suppose you had profound calm. Suppose you had calm out to the edge of space, calm. That would be wonderful. Calm is one of the factors of enlightenment. It's a notion that you might just imagine, and then we'll talk about all of them. Imagine that in the balanced mind, 
in the awakened mind, certain factors are present. There are three factors that are composing factors of mind. And the concentration and calm and equanimity. You can even hear them in the in the kind of the tone of the voice. Everybody here has been concentrated. Everybody here knows what calm is. Everybody here knows what equanimity is. And then there are rousing factors of mind. Joy, rapture, and energy, zeal, and investigation. Whoa, this is interesting. What's happening? And those three energizing factors balance the three more composing factors of mind. And then the seventh factor, which is a factor of mindfulness. Sometimes I think about it as being the seventh factor that's an extra one that has its own qualities of not only fully knowing the fullness of the moment in all ways, but knowing also the wise response to the moment. And sometimes I think of it as, as actually the sum of those six other ones. Well, it doesn't matter, you can think of it both ways. Sometimes I think of it as a kind of a candelabra with three here and three here in mindfulness, kind of balancing it in the middle. I used to think about um, how to give a, a, a talk about the seven factors that would make the most sense. And I thought we could do it as an interactive Dharma talk. Not so much talking, but talking about each factor and then experiencing it for a minute. Often we wait for a mind state to arise. Or we say, well, you know, I didn't feel any calm today, or I felt calm but not concentrated. The notion that we could cultivate a mind state purposely was in the beginning days of my practice tremendously exciting for me. When I first heard that teaching about the seven factors and said these are the factors that are balanced in the mind of an enlightened being, or these are the factors that begin to um, be present in larger and larger amounts, be noticeable, discernible in one's mind. I thought to myself, whoa, to wait for them or I haven't got them. The notion that they were cultivatable, that until they arose spontaneously through insight, I could decide, I'll now cultivate some concentration or I will cultivate calm. Everybody here actually has ha been concentrated, if not on this retreat. Let's think a minute about the quality of concentration and how it feels in the mind. People who are musicians here know that when you're playing some music, the mind doesn't, the attention doesn't wander. Especially if you're an ensemble player, the attention doesn't wander. You really have to be fully there. You have to be attentive to everybody else and the music. So you're fully there. People who uh, ski know something about concentration. Because so you have to really stay present in your body, otherwise you fall down. Um, people who like mystery novels know the experience of 
picking up a mystery novel in an, uh, as you take off in an airplane and finding that six hours have passed and you're landing on the other side of the continent and you've been thoroughly engrossed. Everybody here has had the experience of being concentrated. We could cultivate that experience purposely using the breath. We could, and let's do it for a little bit, think about what are the ways in which we could use the breath to cultivate concentration. We could sit for three or four minutes. We could have the intention that during that time, the attention will not move off the experience of the breath. Just have the intention. Three or four minutes. It's a little bit, um, it's a little bit hard. I'll tell you a story. Once upon a time, oh, I don't know, 15 years ago maybe, uh, that'd be about right, about five years into my, my Dharma practice. I had spent about five years going to retreats because I loved them. I liked listening to stories, liked being away, I liked my teachers, I liked the food, I liked the quiet, liked everything about them. And I didn't have very much uh, experience with concentration. Matter of fact, I really one of the things I enjoyed about retreats is I thought a lot about my life, and my life was very complex and complicated, as is everybody's, I suppose. So it was a great relief for me to be away from home. I had a lot of time to think things over, and I did. And so I thought about what I was going to teach, or I thought about different stories in my life and dilemmas and questions. My teachers, I'm happy to say, didn't bother me very much about that. I just thought, and they let me. And five years later, I was walking along a path down in, uh, in a retreat center in Yucca Valley. And I was walking in one direction, and uh, Joseph was walking in the other direction, talking to somebody else as they were coming. I have no idea of the conversation before I passed them or after I passed them. But I know that as I passed them, I overheard Joseph say to the man next to him, well, you know, nothing is really worth thinking about. Well, that was... Uh, <laughs> that was a stunning revelation for somebody like me who had made a career out of thinking. And actually, I prided myself somewhat. I pride myself on my ability. I'm a pretty good thinker. And in that moment, I was, I was really struck by it because I know that Joseph is a pretty good thinker also. So it made it really interesting for him to have said that. And I had such admiration for him that I decided to take a vow against thinking. <laughs> and of course, he can't take a vow against thoughts because every perception is really a thought. This is a breath in, this is a breath out. This is hot, this is cool, this is pleasant, this is unpleasant. Those are all thoughts. What I actually took a vow on was discursive thought, stories. I took a vow on stories. You know how you start a story and the story comes and you say, oh, oh, I'm supposed to be doing the breath. But this is such an interesting story. <laughs> I'll just think this one little story, and then I won't think any stories after this. 
Do you know, it's like in Alice in Wonderland, there's a little bottle that says, drink me. You know? So like the story comes along and it says, think me. Just, just think me and then you don't have to think anything else after that. Then you could be just with the breath or whatever. So I took a vow on, on ruminative thought, stories, and I, I actually went into the meditation hall, sat down on my zafu and said, this attention is not wandering off the experience of the breath, no matter what. And it's hard to do that. It's really hard to do that. I actually had to sit up very straight. I actually was tense, practice, you know, and a little bit gritting the teeth. I remember telling it to my friends later on when we were doing teacher training together, and I said, you know, that worked a lot for me. Maybe I should tell people that. And they said, well, that doesn't sound like Vipassana instructions. You're supposed to say, be at ease, let the experience present itself. If the attention wanders, then bring the attention back. I said, look, five years, the attention wanders, didn't come back. I'm going to tell people, take a vow. So for the next... For the next several minutes, if you can, let's take a vow. I will too. Okay, take a vow. Not a, not a single experience, not a single moment of attention other than on the breath. Here we go.
It's interesting, isn't it? Not that hard. It's I wonder if you noticed as you did that an increased awareness of some sort of body sensation. You notice do you notice your body more? I'm looking around, see yes, no. One of the things that happens as the concentration gets a little bit more focused is that often there's a heightened awareness of body sensation. It's called rapture. Sometimes people think rapture is um, bliss. Rapture is a generic term. It means increased awareness of body sensation. It's often pleasant. Um, Sometimes it's not even so pleasant, but increased awareness. Sometimes people feel as they sit, all pulling. They maybe feel that their face is pulling in different places. Or they feel throbbing in their heart or in their throat or somewhere in their forehead. Or they feel warm all of a sudden. Or they feel cold all of a sudden. Or they feel like a little shiver up and down their body. Sometimes you feel like you know, pins and needles of goose flesh and your hair stands on end a little bit. Like a little thrill goes through the body. Sometimes people have quite dramatic rapture. People rock on their zafus or shake on their zafus. Different people have different bodies. So other people notice that happening and they think either, uh-oh, what's happening to that person? Or they think, why isn't that happening to me? What's happening to that person? And they worry about its presence or absence. And actually, it's important to know that even though uh, the experience of rapture and actually pronounced a dramatic rapture is part of many people's, some people's practice. It's not everybody's. Everybody seems to have a different path to waking up. Um, since one of the things that's been part of my history is I have a fair amount of experience with um, energy in the body. And I, in the beginning I thought, well, this is truly it. This is enlightenment and I've got that. And it isn't. It's just rapture in the body. And like everything else, it comes and goes. And Sometimes it's pleasant and sometimes it's not, and sometimes it's distracting. I've really come to appreciate, as I work with people, the way in which that's not true for other people. Some people sit quietly and wake up. It's just so 
thrilling to see that, that not everybody's story is necessarily so rapturous or not so visibly rapturous. One of the things about rapture in the body, especially when it's pleasant though, is it tends to wake up the attention. You don't feel, you don't feel sleepy in the presence of rapture, intense body feelings. Even if it's not pleasant, even if it's unpleasant, you don't feel sleepy. And the body is woken up. Everybody who's had that experience here knows that when something unusual is happening in the body, there's a lot of alertness in the mind. The, uh-oh, what's happening here? Or, oh, what's happening here? Sometimes the, there's, when, when all of a sudden there's some sort of period of blissful rapture, pleasant rapture, suddenly warmth or tingling or feeling radiating heat or feeling something pleasant. People think to themselves, I wonder what I just did to have this happen. I was sitting a little bit to the right. I was breathing in this particular shallow way, so I'll just do that. One of the, one of the things that is really useful to have an experience of, say, pleasant rapture for is that you begin to see how the, mi- how the mind clings and how you begin right away to think, oh, how can I get more of this? How can I have this happen? How can I have it stay? Now, or people come to retreats and they say, you know, when I sat six months ago, I was filled with these wonderful feelings and I'm waiting for them to happen. And they're just wonderful feelings and sometimes they happen, sometimes not. Can actually practice bringing the attention to the presence of some uh, rapture in the body, some heightened awareness of body sensation. We'll do that now. If, for instance, when you were sitting and bringing all of the attention to rest strongly on the breath, coming and going, if during that time you felt some body sensations more strongly, then do that again and feel those body sensations. Really enjoy them, investigate them a little bit, hang out in them. If that was not the case, when we close our eyes, let's all close our eyes now. Feel your whole body. Feel your body from the bottoms of your feet through your ankles, your calves, your thighs, your pelvis, relax. Relax the pelvis, sit really comfortably into your body. Feel your breath way down into your belly as you're sitting. See if you can keep all of your body as a focus of attention all the way from your feet up to your ankles and your legs, your pelvis, your whole torso. Feel your arms. Feel your neck. Feel your head. Feel your breath. See if as you breathe in and out, you can feel that breath echo all the way through your body. 
Sometimes we watch the breath and attend the breath just in the belly, just in the ribcage, just around the nostrils. So you can feel that breath echo all the way through your body. As you breathe in, you feel pressure on your bottom, just where you're sitting. Feel your arms move alongside of you. Feel the echo, the feedback through your whole body of the breath. Allow the attention to rest in all the body, in its tingling, in its vibration, in its subtle movements, in its temperature. Everything about the body presents itself to you. Because you're using such a wide field, don't even think of making particular labels. Feel the whole of all the vitality of the body. Feel it shift and change as the breath arises and passes away. And we'll sit this way for two or three minutes. Keep the attention resting in the whole field of physical phenomena and smile. this last few moments, see if you can feel your whole body and all its vitality and see if you can also sense the regular rhythmic coming and going of the breath, right? In your belly. So we bring back the concentration factor in the midst of awareness of rapture.
Well, just as long as we're sitting. Let's sit two minutes longer and bring the factor of calm. Take your sense of where you are, feeling your whole body, attentive to the breath arising and passing away. See if you can make the breath deliberately just a little bit longer. Really just let it last longer. Don't pull on it. Just make space for it to be there, present in its arisen state a little longer. Breathing in a long breath. Calm the body. Letting out the long breath. Calm the body. Actually, this is fun. I'm having a good time. I think I'll talk about a whole the three of them together now, and we'll do three of them together. Feels like it works better that way. I want to talk about the faculty of investigation. It's a I, I'm so intrigued by it because it there's a quality of the mind being alert to seeing that's not discursive, it's not thinking about, but investigating. I think about it something like uh, waiting for um, revelation, expecting to know something. I got um, interested this year in um, those paintings or drawings that are called stereograms. Have you seen them? Um, You look at what just looks like a colored uh, uh, diagram, a colored pattern, and if you look at it in a certain way, it becomes three-dimensional. It's called a stereogram. Have you seen it? 
My husband is very good at them. He looks at them, and he says, oh, look at that, and he sees it right away. And I do not see it right away. And he said, well, here's the instructions. You put them up to your face, and you take them away. You put it close and far and close and far, and you have to cross your eyes as it's coming in and out and in and out, and then suddenly it will pop out. But I try that. I do in, out, in, out, and it looks just the same to me. And I know it's there, so I keep on trying, and then all of a sudden, some of them, I see it, and then it's tremendously exciting. But in the meantime, I'm looking and looking and looking, and I don't see it, and he said, you know, keep on looking so you can do it, cross your eyes. <laughs> but you don't see it until you see it. But while you're trying to see it, there's that quality of knowing that it's somewhere there. Other people see it, I might see it. So to bring to it that quality of expectant looking. I might not see it, but some of them I just don't see, but some of them I do. In a way, in this practice, we give away the punchline of the story. We do not say, try to do this meditation, this awareness practice, this mindfulness, and at the end you'll see what the three characteristics of experience are that the Buddha taught, if understood fully, would mean liberation. But we're not going to tell you what they are. You'll have to find them yourself. We tell straight out. Is they really going to see about impermanence? Really going to see anicca, dukkha, anatta? You're going to see about impermanence? Going to see about the cause and the end of suffering? Going to see about emptiness of separate self? So now it's like giving away the last page of the novel. That's what you see. But then say, okay, now look for it. Find it. It's like the stereogram. It's in there somewhere. But you need to see it yourself. It does not do it for me. If my husband says, look, Sil, it's right there. If he sees it, it doesn't do it for me. I need to see it. Even if he says it's three antelope and a watermelon or something, <laughs> if I can't see it, then I can't see it. And so it's the same with those characteristics. You really need to see them yourself. So here you know the answer, the last page of the novel. That's what's there. But how to see it in a way that pops out as a realization. So there's that quality of investigation. And how to have a quality of investigation. How can we do that? When we sit again in a minute, when I ask you to cultivate that quality of investigation, what I'll say is, now that you really sense the coming and going of the breath, really have it um, more or less firmly in, in, in the mind's eye, in the vision of the scope. Now, look at it really closely. What do you know about it? Where's the beginning? Where's the end? Does it have a beginning? Does it have an end? How many beginnings does it have? It's not one breath, surely. There isn't such a thing as a breath. There isn't such a thing as a breath. There isn't even such a thing as an in-breath or an out-breath. There are a zillion little sensations that make up every moment of our experience. And we mark off some of them. They say, okay, these are the in-breath, these are the out-breath, these are the spaces between. But when you look closer and closer and closer, you can't find them so easily. Where does one begin? Where does the other one end? It gets to be tremendously interesting to look. So you could give yourself that sort of a, 
and exciting homework. Where is the beginning of the breath? Does it have an end? The in-breath does not, the in-breath doesn't become an out-breath. Even if you think in a big, gross way, well, there's a certain feeling of in and a feeling of out. But the feeling of in doesn't become the feeling of out. The feeling of in begins and ends, and then the feeling of out, sometime later, begins and ends. Do you ever look for those begins and ends? It's tremendously interesting. I could do that. We'll do that in a minute. And then we'll sit, just for a little bit, with a sense of uh, equanimity. Maybe I'll say something about it as we sit. But I want to tell you before we do it that the different, there is a difference between equanimity and tranquility or calm. They kind of sound the same, and sometimes we use them in normal, normal talk as if they're the same. But calm has a sense of smoothness and uniformity about it. We know what people mean when they say the lake surface was very calm. Equanimity does not mean smooth. Equanimity means the ability to balance itself. In the 70s, when people were beginning to do consciousness research, people used to do um, um, research. One of the early research projects was with meditators doing different kinds of meditations. And they would plug them up to EEG machines and they would see when they startled them, if they rang a bell or made a noise or buzzed a buzzer, they would watch to see the startle in the mind of meditators. And depending on the kinds of meditation that people did, some people didn't startle. They just continued on. People doing mindfulness practice registered of a jump in the EEG, an awareness of registering when sounds happened or doors slammed or buzzers buzzed. wasn't that they became frightened, but the mind uh, noticed them and could watch it on a pattern. Dung, ding, ding. What they noticed, though, is that if the mind, if the if the brain was producing a certain kinds of um, uh, balanced alpha waves or beta waves or whatever it was, I think it was the alpha waves that they were looking for, and then there'd be a bu- a bell or a buzzer that the waves would be interrupted, but they'd right away settle down again and talk more about the possibility of the mind balancing itself than staying smooth. I always like to leave uh, zeal or interest, energy, for the last of the six factors before mindfulness. Because I think, uh, in my experience, if we do it that way, it gets so interesting and so exciting by the time you're up to that. It is for me, anyway, to be able to feel, look, I really can bring the attention to a concentrated place. And what's more, I feel my body in a waked-up way. And what's more, even when it's waked up with intention, I can bring a certain amount of calm to the mind and to the body and steady it. 
And with investigation, I can really start to look at things, not think about them, but look at them with a brightened uh, acuity. And I can do all of that and remain nicely balanced. And my sense of that uh, increasing zeal is that as we begin to feel that we really can do this, we really can cultivate something, the sense of uh, excitement about it increases. Remember when I first took that vow about I'm not going to do any stories, what happened to me after some period of really intense keeping the attention on the breath, which was not easy or comfortable, as I began to feel my body vibrating and warm and awake to me in a way that I hadn't felt before. Now that is definitely not enlightenment, but it was so interesting. And all of a sudden, practice got really interesting. My stories, which I'd been telling myself for five years, got very uninteresting. After all, when you think about the stories that you tell yourself, you've told yourself those stories a thousand times. <laughs> if, you, if you went to a video store and rented a video and took it home and discovered that it was the same video that you had already seen twice even, not even a hundred times, but twice, once before, I wouldn't watch that video anymore. I'd just do something else because it would be boring. Sometimes you rent a video. You know in the beginning of videos, sometimes they have a coming attractions. They say it's coming soon, this and this video. But what if you rented a video and it was only coming attractions? And that two minutes of this and two minutes of that. And when we sit here and plan, I'll go home, I'll do this, I'll do, go do that, I'll do this, I'll do that. It is only coming attractions. It's, you know, it's, and when the mind and the body wake up, this moment becomes so amazingly interesting that the zeal is enormous. Nothing is more interesting than this very moment. That's really true, you know, nothing is more interesting than this very moment because there is nothing other than this very moment. So we'll do that and then we'll sit at the end and the seventh factor, of course, is a factor of mindfulness which Sometimes you can think of just the balance of the other six. I think about mindfulness as not only having all the factors enough in balance so that the mind is awake and alert. It's awake and alert and wise. Knows what's happening, knows what the, the response to what's happening is. And it's wise about possibility about what's a skillful choice in terms of bringing right effort to the next moment. So it's this moment and this moment conditioning the next moment. So we just sit a little bit. Maybe we'll start from the very beginning. We'll back up. See if you can close your eyes. Sit comfortably or not so comfortably if you need to in order to be sure that you're alert and awake and zealous and see if you can bring the attention to rest completely 
in the coming and going of the breath. Feel your body from the bottoms of your feet to the top of your head. Feel all of its vitality. Feel all the ways in which you know it's there. All of the feedback from it. Enjoy it. Smile. feeling all the vibrancy of the body. See if at the same time you can feel the sense of breath, at least rising and falling in your belly, in your chest, in the middle of your body. And when you can, make the next few breaths just a little bit longer. Allow them a longer space to arise and pass away. Now, see if you can bring the quality of investigation to all of your experience. And look at something in a really inquisitive way. Where is the beginning? Where is the end? 
What's happening, really? Relax a little bit now and let kind of wide field of awareness include sounds. Be balanced in this moment. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 14, 1996. It is an offering of the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.